Uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to First uh, Samuel chapter chapter three is where we're going to be today. Today, uh, thus thus far, Paul has effectively offended all the Celine Dion fans, the Democrats, the Republicans, any third partiers out there. And uh, <laughs> let's see uh, let's see what I can do, huh? A lot to live up to. I'm pretty good at it, though, so, you know. <laughs> We're entering a story this morning which will be familiar to you if you went to Sunday school or VBS or anything like that. The story of God calling, uh, calling Samuel. Um, so, again, 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 3. And whenever I think of this story of God calling Samuel, I think of coloring pages kind of like this. Anybody color anything like this? Have you given, those of you who are, who are volunteers in the children's ministry, given coloring pages like this? There's so many problems with this, I don't have time to talk about it. And then I defend all the youth workers, and etc. Uh, but when I think of these stories, and often what we do with stories in the Bible, we do something like this to them. And what I want for you today to do, what I want to do today is I want to challenge your vision of these stories and move them away from something like this to something that is far more complex, far more difficult, far more real. This uh, story begins in verse 1 on a minor note. On a minor note. Now the boy Samuel, and this word boy uh, is nahar, not yaled, so it's not child, but it's like a teenager. So, of course, that's the first problem with it. It's not like God is talking to an eight-year-old. He's speaking to a teenager. So he's a young man. The boy Samuel, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. Now we learn... Two very important things in these, uh, these two lines. First, we are given Samuel as the protagonist of the story. This is going to continue what we've seen so far. And that's kind of Samuel being pushed forward and forward and forward as somebody who is going to replace Eli. But we learn something else that is very important. And that is this, the state of Israel, the state of God's people. And there are two things there. First, God is not speaking through the prophets. And second, God is not giving visions or dreams. And these are the two primary ways that God spoke in the Old Testament um, before they had you know, Bibles in every hand and, and, and in the pews in front of them when they went to synagogue. This is how God spoke. He delivered a message to a prophet. The prophet delivered it to the people. Or someone was given a vision to then deliver to the people, which means this. God has stepped back. From his people. Now, I hope that that sits in your gut as a terrifying statement. God has taken a step back from his people. He is not moving in them. He is not speaking to them. He is not effectively working with them. He stepped back. Now, we know why. This isn't a secret. This is no brainwave. This is nothing new to you. We know why. It is because his people are in rebellion against him. He has laid out for them the path, the way that he has called them to walk. And they have said, no thanks, God. No thanks. And we see this in the leadership. We see this in Eli refusing to rebuke his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are, who are priests. And they're abusing the ladies that are serving in the temple. And they're, they're blaspheming the name of God and not, and not treating the things of God with the reverence that is 
do his name. We see that in the book of Judges, which precedes the book of 1 Samuel, as the people themselves continually reject the word of God, rebel against the word of God, say no thanks God. And so what is God's response to this? God steps back. Moses told them that this would happen. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy is a really important book. And it's really important because it is Moses' last words to the people of Israel. He is about to die and they're about to cross the Jordan into the land. And so Deuteronomy is like the longest last sermon you've ever listened to. If you think I go long, you know... You're lucky. I'm not Moses. Moses goes on. And that's what's happening here. In chapter 4, he says this. If you, he's talking to people, if you act corruptly and make carved images, if you take a form and you place it in the place that only belongs to God, and if you do evil in the sight of the Lord your God, and you provoke him to anger. Hear those words? You provoke God to anger. I know that today uh, that's not a popular sentiment and I know that that's not something we like to think about very often because we've taken the word of God and we've made a children's coloring page out of it. But what does it say in scripture? It says that you can tick God off. You can make him angry. You can provoke his wrath. Especially if you are a child of God who's been given the word of God and the blessings of God and the spirit of God and you read those words and you receive those blessings with gratitude and then you walk in unrighteousness. God is provoked to wrath. I call heaven and earth against you this day that you will utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess and you will not live in it long, but you will be utterly destroyed and the, God, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And here's a line that really stuck out to me and has been sort of haunting me all week. There you will serve the gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Abandoning the way of the Lord leaves us in search of other gods. We, all human beings, are created for worship. We are made to be worshipful people. That's why you go to any nation in the world and you will find religion. You will find people worshiping something. Something must go in that spot. And if we remove God from that spot, what's going to go in the midst of that spot? What's going to go in there? Things created by human hands, better cars, bigger homes, larger TVs, more enticing romances, a better position at work. The gods of human ingenuity that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell, nor save, nor raise the dead, nor bring freedom, nor bring liberation. Woe to us. These are millstones around our necks. These are shackles and dead weights that imprison us with things that are only half real. Do you think the money in your pocket is real? It's paper. It's nothing. It's meaningless. Watch the stock market crash and see how well your 401k fares, right? It is all human fiction. And what do we do? We live, we fight, we work, we die, we sell our souls 
so that we can have this thing that is only half real. But freedom, real freedom, is found in the living God who says, I own every hill, I own every cattle, and I can provide every single thing you need. Not what you want, not what you think, not necessarily what you desire, but what you need. He says that the world has been made for the poor in spirit, that the meek shall inherit it, that the merciful will receive it, that the persecuted will own the kingdom of God. These are deep and hard truths, and only a few people can find them. Only a few people are willing to sell everything to buy that truth. I heard a sermon once, and, and, and if you've been in church for any length of time, you hear the word revival bandied about, especially down south. Man, they love the revivals. We concocted one every year. We called it revival. As though, hey, God's going to come on August 10th through August 17th, and we're going to have a revival. So I hope you show up. We did it every week, every year. I don't know if they do them as much up here. I haven't heard anyone talk about it, but we use this word revival. If you want the presence of God, and I want the presence of God, like I can't express how much I want the presence of God. If we want the presence of God throughout Scripture, it begins with this, not with calling for revival, but calling for reformation, for change. If we want God's presence here, it isn't he that has to come down and mix us up. It is we who have to align ourselves with his word. Only then does God step in. And this is what Moses says as he concludes this this fierce warning out of Deuteronomy chapter 4. But from there, from this place where God has scattered you, if you would seek the Lord, if you would seek the Lord, you would find him. And how must you seek him? With all your heart and with all your soul. That word soul in Hebrew means your life. Everything you do, every day, every moment, every job, every breath, your whole life is directed toward the desire to know God. And God responds to that heart. If that isn't our heart, forget revival. Forget the presence of God. Forget the transforming work of the Spirit. Forget all of those things, for they will not come. And this is what we see in Israel. Brokenness. Why Isaiah speaks so truly, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked man forsake his ways, let the unrighteous man forget his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that the Lord might have compassion on him. For what is the characteristic, the nature of our God? It is a God who is merciful. Every broken heart can be mended. Every shattered life can be healed. Every sin can be laid aside. And God can transform you here and now. If you come to him and you give him your all. And so we come to the book of Samuel in this situation, the story of Samuel, and it's, um, it's heavy. It's heavy. And yet, I really like children's programming. And so I figured we'd finish the story um, with flannel graph. Because 
It's time. I haven't done a frontal graph in a while. So here we go. The boy Eli is ministering before the Lord, uh, fighting off the harpies with his lightsaber. We have some really weird things in the flannel graph box, and I thought that was just perhaps the coolest thing ever. <laughs> really liked it. And I don't, know, um, I don't know what's up with long-haired black harpy guy. That isn't actually what happened. He was ministering before the Lord. And Eli uh, is getting old. We, we know this. He's, he's, he's aged in years. And as sometimes happens uh, through the years, his eyesight has grown dim. And so Eli's wandering around and knocking stuff over. And <laughs> it's rough. It's rough to get old. In fact, this week, where's Doug? Doug, you here? There he is. Doug told me this week not to get old. He says it's no fun getting old. And did you knock anything? Did you break anything this week? Probably. Probably. So bad I don't even remember. <laughs> well, the situation comes, and Samuel is uh, sleeping. It's nighttime. The, 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 the lamp of the Lord that they would keep lit hasn't gone out yet. The candles they've lit haven't gone out. And, and, and Samuel is in bed, and Eli is in bed. And, 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 and the Lord calls and says, Samuel. Samuel wakes up. And I don't know if God was doing his best, like, Eli impression voice, uh, or what it was, but, but Samuel um, says, well, that must have been Eli. And so he, he goes off, and he finds Eli, and he says, you called me. And Eli says, what? No, I didn't. Go back and lay down. So Samuel goes back, and he lays back down. And the Lord calls out to Samuel again, and he says, Samuel. Samuel wakes up. Well, who else would be calling, right? There's no one else around. It must be Eli. And so he goes, and he finds Eli, and he wakes Eli up, and he says, you called me. And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go lay down. So Samuel goes back, and he lays down and, whoop, and, lays down and tries to go back to Go back to sleep, and God calls again, Samuel. Samuel wakes up. I begin to feel Eli's pain, mainly because I have a daughter. And man, she doesn't call out three times in the night. And uh, Laura, gracious Laura, is the one that usually gets up. Like, let's be honest. Laura does way more getting up and going to, to Eli. And so, I, you know, I, this story really resonates with me more as a parent now because I'm like, man, yeah. Yeah, that's rough, Eli. I'm sorry, Samuel goes and wakes Eli up, and Eli's more holy than me, because what I would do is say to Emery, okay, next time the voice speaks to you, speak back. Not because I think it's the Lord, but just because I don't want her to wake me up again, right? And that's, that's my impulse, but it says that the, Eli perceived that the Lord was speaking uh, to Samuel, and so he says to Samuel, okay, when, when the voice calls again, this is what I want you to do. Say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel goes back and he lays down and lay down. There he goes, lays down. And the Lord says, Samuel, and Samuel again wakes up. And this is where we interlude in the story, and we usually cut it off at this point. And we tell the children, look, God can still use children. It doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, how much you know, God can use you, which isn't isn't untrue like that's absolutely that is not that's absolutely correct but if we keep reading in the story we would find that to be sort of a, a sort of strange thing a lesson to garner from it because the answer then would be yes god can use you to um deliver the message to your foster dad that 
God's going to kill his whole family. Because that's what... Yeah. (laughs) Because that's what God does. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing at which both ears of everyone who hear it will tingle. Like when you hear something like really juicy or really terrible, like, and you get that sort of feeling in your, in your body, like this is, this is going to create a visceral reaction. It's so intense and terrible. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. One of the things that we try to do to the Bible is we try to make it palatable. We try to make it pleasant. And I think that this is one of the chief causes of of why we see so very little faithfulness out of the Church of America today. Because we have spent 50 years dumbing down the Scriptures, making them easy to swallow, making them easy because we don't want messages like this. It, doesn't, it, it, it sits awkwardly in us because we, we, we see a society that is pushed back against us. Society has said, no, that's not the way God should be. That's not the way people should be. We should all be like big hugs and love and things like that. And so we have taken God and we've taken the scriptures and we have made him a God of wood and stone, a God that does not see, that does not hear, that does not speak, that does not judge, that does not call call for repentance, that does not rebuke. And if we don't have a God that is real, that does all those things, we do not have a God that can save. For there's nothing to save us from. Except for you look across the world and you know the truth. We need saving. Don't we? We need saving. Because the world is desperately broken. And so what we need to do with the Bible is we need to recognize that it is not tame, it is not pleasant, it is not palatable, it is wild. It's wild because it is the word of God and it reveals to us the character and nature of God and God is wild. He does not agree with you. He does not think like you. He does not have to please you. He does not have to give you anything. He owes you nothing. Everything that is done by him for you is governed by this word grace. And it's a lovely word. It's a lovely word. But if you don't get that word... You make an idol. And that, I think, effectively is what we have done. But, but Eli is not like that. Eli is not like us at all. Morning comes and, and Samuel goes and goes to Eli and Eli wakes up and uh, Eli says, tell me what God told you and don't you dare hide any of it from me. And if you do, if you hide anything from me, May it come doubly upon you. And so he tells Eli everything. He just tells him everything. Look at verse 18 in your Bibles. And I'd encourage you, if you have paper Bibles and you make notes, underline it or on your Kindle or whatever it is, notice this line. He said, uh, and Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he, that is Eli, said, 
It is the Lord. Now remember, when you see all caps in your Bible, that means that it's sort of hiding the actual name of God. The name, they didn't want to abuse the name of God, and so they would put Lord in all caps. And so what he's actually using here is God's name as revealed to Moses in the burning bush, Yahweh. And that's, remember, the, the verb in Hebrew, to be, to exist. When Moses says, we don't even know your name, God says, my name is I am. I exist. And so what does Eli say here? He gets this message of, I mean, like, I can't even, can you imagine getting a message from God that says, your entire house is going down in flames. This is my will for you. And Eli's response is, it's the one who is. It's God. Let him do what he thinks is good. Now that's faith. That's a faith that says, God's will supersedes every single thing that I want or desire. Do we have that strength of faith? Is that what characterizes the church of Christ, the Christian churches, our churches? Is that what characterizes the Christians you know and the people you walk with and the things that you believe? Is that characterize us? It is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. Man, that's... It's strong, isn't it? As I've been saying throughout this series, what I want us to do is I want us to, to see the story, and you have kind of the, the small, narrow point of, of this story, and this story is about Samuel being called by God and delivering a message to Eli. But there's a wider arc of the story throughout 1 Samuel, and that is the development of the kingship and how Samuel is going to play an important role in that as the next high priest and judge of Israel. But there is something even larger and far more grand in this book than asking questions about how does Eli grow up and, and what about King David and all these other things. And that is that wonderful word, I am. We receive information about who God is. And there are some very important things about who God is that we see in this passage. And I want to I dive into those here for a couple of minutes before our time is up. And that first point is this, that this is a God. The God that you worship, if you come here today to worship the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is a God who makes and who keeps his promises. Now that's really good news. Amen? Because it means that when we read words like, from Hebrews, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. How many of you need that? Yeah. We read words from Jesus where Jesus is speaking in John chapter 6 and he says that, every, that it's the Father's will that everyone who believes in my name, I will rescue and raise them up on the last day. Want that promise? That's a good one, isn't it? We read in Revelation and this is just like, you, you all know I have a soft, I love Revelation. I bring it up every week. Uh, but Revelation 21, this great vision of God who has restored, that he's done what we call the kingdom of God, which is this catch-all phrase that means that the earth itself has been restored and the sky has been restored and everything has been set right and he has raised the dead and he has brought them into his midst and the wicked have gone off and he has judged everything that is evil and death is gone and Satan is gone and wickedness is gone and it is God is in their midst and it's sort of this vision of everyone is around God, every person who has been faithful unto him, faithful unto to death are surrounded are surrounding God and God is their God and he is their people and we are weeping why are we weeping because everything is so broken 
And finally, everything is fixed. And it says that God is the one who wipes away the tears from your eyes. That God is the one who, who will finally be there to comfort us. Not, not just as a parent might comfort a crying child, but as a perfect father who has experienced every single layer of brokenness that you have experienced, who can feel and empathize perfectly with everything that you have endured and suffered in this life. And as you are weeping, he is the one who lifts you up and gives you peace. I want that promise. God is a God who makes and who keeps promises. And that is amazing good news for us this morning. But on the other side of it, it means that God keeps all of his promises. Deuteronomy 11 26 through 28 says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. And here he's speaking. Here we're not speaking. This message right now, if you're not a Christian here today, this part might, might not apply as much to you because he's speaking directly to people who say, God, you are my God. So if you're here today and you call yourself a Christian, this is especially speaking to you. And he says this, again in Deuteronomy 11, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. What's the blessing? If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you, Today, And the curse is, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, and you turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today. Now that's important because it weaves together two things. It weaves together God's blessings, and it weaves together God's curses. And he calls us to understand it, to hold fast to those blessings. Those are for the faithful, and yet there is judgment for those who are not. And I think generally we would look at that and we would say, well, that's bad news. It's good news that God keeps his good promise and it's bad news that God keeps his bad promise and that's mistaking the Bible completely. It is absolutely good news that there are two great realities post-judgment, heaven and hell. That's good news. Part of your gospel as you leave this place and take gospel out there and declare the greatness of God, you are including judgment in that word because judgment is essential. It means, firstly, that God is a just ruler, that God who watches over the cosmos, who has all of the stars and all of the planets and all of creation in his hands, is a God who is just who can mete out justice with equity. He knows the truth of every person's heart. We have justice system, we call it in America, but if you've got a good lawyer, if you grew up in the right neighborhood, if you know the right people, sometimes, depending on the color of your skin, all of those things play into whether or not you will get justice. God isn't like that. You can't buy him off. You can't trick him. You can't pay him off. He knows right down to every moment of your life. And so he is able to judge justly. And it means then that if God is able to judge justly, and he says, I am coming again to judge the quick and the dead and the sons of men, it means that evil will be answered. And justice will meet its end without the message of blessing and curses Without God's final and total judgment, we don't have good news. We don't have good news because we don't have a just God and we don't have a final end of evil. No, what we have together in all of God is a God who cares so deeply about justice that he is able to lay out for you a path of life and provides that in the death of his own son, Jesus Christ. I think this is why God cares so much about truth. We see so much in the New Testament 
about, about truth, why truth-telling matters, why, why is, and, and it's so funny because when we think of like things like, you know, gossip or half-truths or, you know, those, those sort of smile lies that, you, I'll call them smile lies that you have when you come in here and I say everything's good and you're like, how, how are you? And you're like, oh, everything's good when really, you know, you hate my guts or you're mad at Paul because he insulted Celine Dion again or whatever it is, right? All of these little lies that we tell, we say, well, that's not nearly as bad as murder. That's not nearly as bad as adultery or, or theft or something like that. No, to God it is. God, to God, truth-telling matters so much. Because God is a God of truth. If you're to honor him, you must also be truthful. But I think that there's something important here as well, uh, uh, sort of drilling down even deeper past just this one point, because we can uh, make promises, but we have no way of keeping them. So the Naughtons are being crazy and knocking down walls in their house. And Bill says, hey, can you come over and help me lay up some drywall? I could say to Bill, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to help you tomorrow and I'll, I'll, I'll be there. I promise I'll be there. Can I keep that promise? Not if I break my leg or get sick or something. That really got dark. Not if I win a million dollars because if I win that, I won't be over to help you, Bill. I'm sorry. Right? We, we have all kinds of things that get in our way. I can make a promise, but there is absolutely no way that I can keep that promise or know for certain that I'll keep that promise. But how is it with God? God can make a promise and he can keep a promise because God is, and here's this technical theological term, God is sovereign. Think about what he has declared to Eli here. He has declared to Eli that because of his son's blasphemy and because Eli was not, uh, would not defend the honor of God, he is going to destroy his entire house. Now, God doesn't throw down lightning bolts or something like that. God orchestrates battles and sicknesses and all of these bizarre things that we're going to see are going to happen. How could God make all of those moving parts and personalities and events happen? Because God is sovereign over history itself. God can make his promises come to pass. So if God says to you, I will bless you with every blessing. If you will walk in my ways, you will be raised up on the last day and I myself will be your comforter. But if you turn from my ways and you don't heed my words and you don't follow my commandments, you aren't a child of mine and you don't belong in my presence. God can see those promises, every single one of them fulfilled because God is sovereign. And that's amazing news for you today. Amazing news. Because it means that whatever you are going through today, whatever pain you're enduring, whatever problem you're suffering, whatever thing that you're wondering, God, where are you? God has something in mind for you. I use Job as an extreme example. Uh, how many of you read, you're familiar with the story of Job? Did Job enjoy that time that he went through? Not at all. And Job could not see into history, the darkness of history, that on the other side of this, God is going to bring about uh, uh, more than Job had ever imagined. But Job could also not see that 3,000 years later, when I go through a hard time, I lean against that story. That God was, was doing something in Job's life for people thousands of years. You don't have any idea what God can do through your suffering. And God can make good happen out of evil in your life because God is sovereign. And he's not just looking at your life, he's looking at every single life throughout all of human history. And he's accomplishing his purposes. That's good news. 
If we drill down one more layer, I think we would see this. And that is bringing us kind of full circle to where we were last week. And that is that God will be honored. That God will be honored. That if there is a God who can make and, and does make promises of great glory for you. And God who is sovereign to make sure that those things happen in your life. That is amazing news. And we should have all glory and honor. And I really appreciated what Paul said. When you sing a song, you shouldn't just be singing a song. I'm just singing a song. Here we are, we're praising God. No, you are, you, are, you are laying at the feet of God all the praises do his name. We should be singing until our throats ache. We should be praying until our knees are calloused. We should be offering God everything because he's worthy of more than you can offer him. God will be honored, and yet we see in Eli's life, and I want to see, end here with these, these two important points. In the life of Eli, and in the judgment that we see here, we see in verse uh, 14, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice. I want you to see that, and I want you to be scared by it. You should be. I am. There is a point at which you can go too far. There's, a, there's words left this in, uh, or in Hebrews chapter 6 and chapter 3 and some other places in Hebrews where, where Hebrews is, the author of Hebrews is talking to Christians who are thinking, well, maybe I need to add something to my faith or maybe I need to believe in some extra things or maybe I need to do some more things or, or maybe this faith isn't really it at all and I need to do something else. And the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 you can't add anything to what Jesus does. Jesus paid it all, all to him you owe. There's nothing to be added or taken away. What you need to do is hold fast to that confession of faith. But he lays out this warning and he says, those who have experienced the blessings of God, those who have been washed in his blood and felt his spirit and God has worked through all this salvation, he set you on the right path. And then you say, I thank you, God, for the salvation. I thank you for the promise of eternal life. But I would really, really rather do my own thing. Hebrews says, be warned. For who can bring you back? Once you've spit upon the cross of Christ. Now, there's this grave warning. Now, thankfully, or maybe confusingly, we're never told where that line is, which is why you should steer as far away from the line as possible, right? Don't hang out on the line of sin. Don't hang out on the fence. Don't say, well, maybe I can get away with this one little thing. Because we, we should be the people who abhor evil. You're reading the scriptures. What does God think of violence? He hates it. What does God think of adultery? He despises it. What does God think about false witnessing and, and lying and, God, and all these other things that you know and I don't even need to talk about? God hates it, hates it, hates it. So why would you ever go near it? The warning of, of Hebrews is don't tinker with things that could bring you destruction. Rather, fix your eyes upon Jesus. You know these words from chapter 12 so well. The author and perfecter of the faith, of the faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, suffering its shame and its vile nature so you could have redemption. Put your faith, your life, and your trust in him. And I want to end on this too. Eli's the problem. You notice that? God does not condemn Eli's house here because Hophni and Phidias were bad dudes. Now, these guys were never believers. They had nothing to do with God. They were just going through motions. But Eli, Eli was a man of God. He was a man of God who did not defend 
the honor of God. Which brings us to this. We see throughout this text a picture of God who who makes and keeps his promises. He's able to do that because he is sovereign over all things. Who, because of his power and glory and might and ability to make and keep those promises and and make sure that they happen, deserves all glory and honor and praise, has prepared for himself a people who will stand up for God. Now, when I say stand up for God, uh, here I get to offend the political season. Thank you, Paul. I'm not talking about voting for this candidate or that candidate or getting this thing passed or that thing passed. I'm talking about a people who are way more interesting than that. I'm talking about a people who will say to their boss, I will not tell this half-truth about this product because I worship a God who loves truth. And the boss who says, well, then you're going to get let go because this is what I'm telling you you need to do. And the person who says, I don't care about your job or your money. I care about God. A family who will say to their children, listen, I don't care that you want to do this or that with your friends. You want to go here or there or you want to play this sport or that sport. We're going to be worshiping God Sunday morning. I'm sorry. You're going to have to set that aside. I'm talking about people who are rapidly seeking with all of their lives Jesus Christ. Because when people look at us, they don't see that. They see people just like them. What, how is that interesting? When they looked at Jesus, the religious people looked at Jesus and said, that dude is weird and he's kind of ticking me off. The people who were in power, the people who had wealth, the people who had the jobs, the people who had, who had everything they needed in their lives, who didn't need to pray, God give us their daily bread. They looked at Jesus and said, he's asking us to risk too much. We can't have any place with him. So what, who circles Jesus? Outcasts, prostitutes, sinners, the poor, people who have already lost everything. And so when Jesus calls you to leave everything, they say, okay, cool, I didn't have anything to go with. The problem with us in America today is we have everything. We don't need God. And when we read Jesus and he says, give it up, follow me, we say, no, thank you. I can be very comfortable in my seat on Sunday morning and I can go home and be just as I was before. I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of it in my life. I'm tired of it in your lives. I'm tired of it in all of our lives. I'm tired of it. I want a God who's, who's raging with fire, who's doing unexpected things. I want a God who says, take your shoes off because I'm here and this place is holy. I want... I want We shouldn't be afraid of being called fools. We shouldn't be afraid of being insulted. We shouldn't be afraid of the world looking at us and saying, you guys are stupid for worshiping God. We shouldn't care about any of that stuff. What do we have to do with them? What do they have to do with us? All we have is God. All we hunger for is his presence. All we want is the living Savior. That's what this is about. That's what the scriptures declare. That's what they're clawing and grasping the message they declare. And if you're with me today, as we close all of this down and we, we sort of end the, uh, the schedule, read your scriptures this week 
and ask God to breed some wildness into your life. Ask him to change you. Read, I was, I'm reading through the Gospels, read, through, read Mark and just read Jesus. Man, this dude is crazy. And say to God, let this be your only prayer this week. God, I don't want money, I don't want promotion, I don't want card, I don't want any of this crap that the world has. I want Jesus. Show me Jesus. Make me love Jesus. Make me like Jesus. Give me only Jesus. We sang this song when I was a kid. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Ye soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner. He will not suffer loss. From victory unto victory. That is the message of the gospel, the message of the church. Don't get caught up in all of the other things. Seek only this. Let's stand and sing.